This is Archive Atlanta, episode 159, Loserville. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lamos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So this week I'm excited to share my interview with author Clayton Truder whose book Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta, and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports, which comes out next week on February 1st. Uh, And I have an episode about the Atlanta Crackers. I did one about boxing, but that has been the extent of my sports coverage so far. So getting a chance to read this book was enlightening. I'm not going to pretend I was excited to read it. I was like, no, I, I don't like sports. I don't care. I learned so much. And like, all of my favorite Atlanta books, it's about so much more than just sports. It's about the city, you know, it's about the way we are, and then learning all about these teams. We talked about why the South lacked professional sports in the first place, who and what changed that, the origin stories of the Braves, the Hawks, the Falcons, the Flames, and the Chiefs, and a whole host of other fun stuff. So without further ado, hope you enjoy. To start things off, so I'm very curious about who you are exactly, what's your connection to Atlanta, all that stuff, so you can Feel free to introduce yourself, you know, what you do, where you work, all that stuff. And then I'd love to know how you got to writing this book about, you know, Atlanta professional sports. I I teach at Norwich University in Vermont, which is a small military college. I got a PhD in U.S. history at Boston College. Uh, This project started out as my doctoral dissertation a little over 10 years ago. I initially, I'm an urban historian by training. I'm also interested in U.S. cultural history. So this brings the kind of popular culture uh, component together with the the urban history component. And I had the idea of writing about the history of professional sports franchise relocations, which became a major deal in pro sports in the second half of the 20th century. My advisor very wisely told me, you can't really write about this writ large. It'll take you 50 years. It took me, <laughs> took me several years as it was. So it was the best advice I ever had. Uh, she said, pick a city that is emblematic of the changes you want to talk about. And there's no city more emblematic of it than Atlanta, which essentially creates the model that other cities used as they tried to pursue major league sports. I had no particular connection to Atlanta. I had an uncle that lived in Roswell for a couple of years when I was a little kid and we came and visited a couple of times, but that was the extent of my connection to Atlanta. So I had to come to the city. I had to spend a lot of time in the archives. And I think as important as anything, I had to get a sense of the place. So I spent a, several months in Atlanta just driving around to a great extent. One of the best things that ever happened was there was a guy named Marshall Solomon who was uh, since passed away, who offered individual tours of Atlanta that would show you what you want to see. And he and I spent seven hours together in the car one day. And Marshall, uh, Marshall was an attorney in the city. He, he, I think he was around 80 when he passed away. And he could show me everything that happened in the book. He showed it to me just driving around town. I gave him a list of things I wanted to see. And, uh, and I, I, th- I thank him profusely in the uh, introduction Aww. to the book, because I feel like I, I got a much better sense of the place as a result of it. I'll probably cover this later when we talk about that specific thing. But for me, I'm an outsider. I mean, I moved from New York, so I just Mm -hmm. did a lot of driving around. And your book especially helped me understand some spatial stuff, especially around the stadium that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting that you just roamed around a little bit because you're you're reading. I'm sure you're reading the facts. Right. But you wanted Mm -hmm. to see exactly where it happened. And to me, it's just a matter of respect. I think a lot of time historians, they pick a topic. It's They treat it like it's a subject in a laboratory. I didn't want to do this. This is people. This is their lives. These are the places that are important to them. I wanted to take it very seriously. So it's taken me a decade. From start to finish, this is how I spent my 30s. 
uh, working on this book, essentially. And to me, it was very important that I that I took seriously that this was somebody's home and that I should treat it with respect as I'm trying to tell the story of it. That's amazing. So tell me the entire title of the book, just for the for the record. Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. It's being published by the University of Nebraska Press, and it uh, is available for pre-order now on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and the like, and it uh, is officially for sale on February 1st. Oh, February 1st. Good. Okay, so we have, we have two weeks. Um, so I want to start, again, as an outsider, as a non-sports fan, or I always tell people this story. My parents are both from Spain, so we only watch soccer. That was it. It was like a soccer strictly household. And so I just didn't grow up with football and basketball and baseball. And so I never understood, like, why was the South lacking all of these professional teams? Well, the cities didn't develop as quickly as they did in the urban North and the Midwest. All of the major professional sports leagues developed in the early to mid 20th century, primarily in the cities of the Northeast Corridor and the Great Lakes cities. The South was behind economically in terms of the growth of its cities it was behind. So they developed their own local sporting cultures, as Atlanta certainly does, which I talk about in the book. Uh, but Atlanta is really the first to go out there and uh, pursue these to try to become a major league city itself. So both in the West and as well as the South, the cities were economically in a, in a lesser position than many of the cities in the Northeast and Midwest. And they were also smaller. As those cities grew, as the country developed a better transportation system after World War II with highways and better railways and particularly jet travel. The idea that you could have these leagues that were far flung across the North American continent became much easier. Uh, when you're traveling by train, going to Los Angeles from New York or going to Atlanta takes a significant amount of time. So this change in transportation, new wealth in these other parts of the country, as well as increasing population, all made this much more possible. And also the leagues proved willing to expand. They didn't have to. They essentially all had monopolies over the size of their league and the distribution of teams. It took cities like Atlanta being willing to come out there and say, we'll build stadiums, we'll, we'll invite you to town to be out there pushing uh, for this that made it possible. I, so I did definitely notice that. And I don't know if I realized how, how important the stadium was to getting the team, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that was it. Like it was the promise of we're going to build this thing. It sounds like in every sport. So let's go back to... Is it safe to say the the start of professional sports is with Ivan Allen and with baseball? Well, the start is certainly with Ivan Allen. In many ways, Ivan Allen is the key figure in the book who gets things going. When he runs for mayor in 1961, he had been obviously a major businessman in the city, had been the head of the Atlanta Chamber, and his platform, which came out of his work at the Atlanta Chamber when he ran for mayor to replace William Hartsfield, was called the Six Point Forward Atlanta Plan. And it pushed for things like affordable housing, highway construction, public transportation. But one of the six planks was called Major League City. So he had this very particular vision for Atlanta, that if it wanted to have the stature of a major North American city, it needed the assets, it needed the amenities of cities like New York and Chicago and Los Angeles. So becoming major league by investing in stadiums as a way of luring teams to the Southeast was a major part of his platform. He, he did this both as a source of prestige for the region and also, as was very clear in the time period, he did it thinking it would be a source of social cohesion. There were certainly lots of divisions in Atlanta, whether they're political ones, whether they're transplant versus native, whether they're racial divisions, whether it's city versus suburbs. Um, very much this was presented as being a new center of gravity for Atlanta, an axis which to build around something that people could have in common, despite other, other, um, other sources of division in the region. So the city leadership, uh, whether it was the political leadership with Allen, the corporate leadership, 
or in Atlanta in particular, because Atlanta from the 1940s onward has a biracial governing coalition. Atlanta's black and political, black political and corporate leadership is also very strongly behind this too. So you have the different corporate and political elements in the city working in lockstep on behalf of this effort uh, under, under, the, uh, under the leadership of Ivan Allen from the early 1960s onward. Wasn't segregation an issue with professional sports, if I got that right? Absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons Atlanta advanced economically compared to, say, Birmingham or New Orleans or Charlotte in this time period, Atlanta certainly wasn't perfect, but Atlanta was much more progressive than its peers in the Southeast. And if you were a large corporation in the Northeast, it was a much less embarrassing place, if nothing else, to have your branch facility in the South than having it in in massive resistance Birmingham or New Orleans, a place that was much more aggressive with segregation. Under Hartsfield as mayor Atlanta, Hartsfield had this phrase, go easy, go slow, but go. So there was a lot of kind of token desegregation that happened under him. Some of it was certainly significant, but not like under Ivan Allen, who both as the leader of the Atlanta Chamber and then as mayor pushed for the formal desegregation of downtown, of public amenities in the cities uh, in advance of the Civil Rights Act too. Explain to me this. Again, I'm, people are probably going to laugh at this. I did not know what franchise-free agency meant. Well, it's basically a term that exists in the academic scholarship simply. It's a description of why the major professional sports, Major League Baseball, the National Football League, the National Hockey League, and the NBA, the National Basketball Association, expanded so rapidly after World War II. And it's in part because more cities are capable of hosting pro sports teams. So the leagues take advantage of this, whether it's because of transportation, whether it's because of increasing population centers in the West or in the South, um, also having more uh, more disposable income in many of these places as these as um, particularly capital from the North and the Midwest moved into cities like Atlanta or cities like Phoenix or Los Angeles or Houston. Uh, these places became more capable of hosting them. So the leagues became much more amenable to the idea of expanding uh, their their horizons. And also the idea that franchises simply had to be in the Northeast or the Midwest ceased to be an idea too. So cities like Atlanta would try to lure teams from other parts of the country, as they did successfully from Milwaukee, an old, you know, certainly an old uh, Great Lakes region city, from St. Louis, an old industrial city as well. So Atlanta very much leads the way in this push for cities to essentially have an arms race with stadium building to lure teams from other parts of the country. Um, In the case of Atlanta, it served Atlanta well, uh, at least in the short term. In the long term, it's been very difficult for cities as a matter of public financing because cities don't want to lose their teams. But there's also the issue, do you really think this is an appropriate public priority? And different cities have had different responses to it. Because these leagues have monopoly statuses over uh, the distribution of teams in them, and in many ways, federal statutes end up protecting this for them, in particular with Major League Baseball, it puts the leagues in the position of having complete leverage over the, uh, over the uh, distribution of teams in their league. So it puts cities in a bad position. Atlanta oh, kind of jumps the gun in terms of this because they went out and said, we want teams and we will pay for them. In many ways, they create the situation that other cities then have to fight to keep their teams or fight to lure other teams. That's so interesting. So did the idea of building the stadium come before even the idea of stealing the Braves from or yes, stealing? I, I think, I think <laughs> I, well, I mean, if you're from Milwaukee, that would certainly be <laughs> Well, I mean, M- Milwaukee had stolen them from Boston, so um, I mean, it, it, 
I guess turnabout is fair play, but uh, I, I, I don't think they really cared whether it was taking a team from another part of the country or an expansion team, because in this time period, uh, Major League Baseball is increasingly having teams move to other cities. Um, Atlanta's hardly the first team to lure teams from another part of the country, but what's different about Atlanta is that it was a very coordinated corporate civic boosting activity that we're going to roll out the red carpet, put out the city leaders to convince people to come to town and make these significant public investments. I mean, this was a core piece of public policy in Atlanta in the 1960s to become major league. Um, For example, when Milwaukee lured the Braves from Boston, they invested some money in a stadium. They thought it would be nice to have a big league team because they thought it would be nice to have a baseball team, not because it would serve these ends of civic prestige or unity. Atlanta was a little bit different because they gave a meaning to pro sports, which was something other than we want to watch a team play. Certainly there were people who wanted to do this, but Atlanta thought it served broader civic ends than simply wanting to go watch a major league baseball game. That's really interesting. And that, and it's, so interesting because it's so on brand to what Atlanta, you know, Absolutely. even for Atlanta of the twenties, it's funny to hear it, that it even went to sports that I just had no idea. That's Well, that's I, really- Ivan Allen senior, Ivan Allen's father is the guy who creates the original forward yeah. Atlanta plan. I mean, going back to Grady and everything, Atlanta has, has been always so great at selling itself. And to this day is, is, yes. is incredible at doing so. <laughs> that's so fascinating. So, okay. So Fulton, is it Fulton County stadium? A- Atlanta name? Fulton County stadium, because both the County and the city had separate ownership stakes in the stadium. Okay. Originally it was just called Atlanta stadium, but over time Fulton County said we're paying the bill too. Our name should be on it as well. Okay. So I believe it's in 74, 74, 75 that they start going from just calling it Atlanta stadium to Atlanta Fulton County stadium. Basically because of the intersection of all of that interstate highway in that area, that's what leads to the idea of building the stadiums there. It was actually not anybody from Atlanta who came up with that idea. A guy named Charlie Finley, who's kind of a notorious baseball franchise owner, owned the Kansas City and then Oakland Athletics, was fighting with the local establishment in Kansas City. He got to know a guy named Furman Bisher, who was the sports editor at the, uh, the, the Atlanta Journal, and because they both were involved with Easter Seals at the time. And he invited him to town, and he showed him different places in the city that Ivan Allen had thought about building the stadium. And he said, why not here? And he pointed to this cleared urban renewal land in the midst of all of these interstate highway systems. If you look at the cover of the book, that was a that was an empty piece of space that had been the Summerhill neighborhood. Uh, yes. Been, okay. been... So I did not realize that they had already cleared it, urban renewal. And yeah. now I think it's clicking that wasn't the idea to put housing there, right? Because there was a housing shortage for Black Atlantans. Absolutely. I mean, there's a, for, a, for a lot of Atlantans, but in particular, oh, yes. in particular, 67,000 residents of Atlanta were displaced by slum clearance in the 50s and 60s, largely during the administration of William Hartsfield. There was certainly the idea, well, we're going to build a ha- affordable housing. It gets pushed off. It gets pushed off. It gets pushed off. Then once the stadium idea gets in there, forget about affordable housing for the time being. The Atlanta Housing Authority sells that piece of land on what was called the Washington Ross and Urban Renewal Site to become the stadium. So, so it gets keeps people's housing needs kept getting kicked down the road. I mean, the stadium wasn't, that land wasn't explicitly bulldozed to become the stadium, but it was bulldozed. It was just there for the taking from the perspective of stadium boosters. So then it became Atlanta Fulton County stadium. Interestingly, there was pretty broad consensus on this, both with the city's white and black political leadership. Um, Part of the idea is that 
um, many predominantly black neighborhoods were to the south of the stadium. And the idea was the stadium would serve as a source of uh, a source of employment for many peoples. Um, I think part of it also was the generation of black political leadership in Atlanta of uh, A.T. Walden and Dobbs, among others, was very interested in the idea of having consensus building kind of attitudes with the civic establishment. So the idea of rocking the boat was was certainly not politically the mindset of that generation. It was more just explicit deal making. What year did we get the Braves? You, 1966. Well, in a way, in 1964, the, the announcement at the end of the season happens. There's a lame okay. duck year in 1965 when the Braves have a contract to come play in Atlanta, but because of a court order, they can't leave Milwaukee yet because they have to fulfill their stadium contract. The Milwaukee Braves come down and play nine exhibition games during the 65 season in Atlanta, uh, just basically to give people a taste of it because Atlanta built that stadium so, so, so quickly. And this proves to be one of the problems with Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. Most big league stadiums take two, three, even four years to build. The contractors threw that thing together in 51 weeks because they wanted to be ready for April 1965 to put a team on the field. They have it ready, but there's no team ready to play yet because of court battles with uh, uh, the with Milwaukee County and Wisconsin over control of the franchise. So it sits basically empty uh, for a year. So they rushed for really, it turned out to be no reason. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty certainly. And the stadium decayed quickly in part because it was built so quickly. It wasn't It wasn't um, well cemented. Uh, the foundation wasn't put in quite appropriately and it, and it uh, aged rather quickly as a result. Yeah. And I, and I like how you added that they didn't like playing in it, right? I mean, people had, no. or people didn't even like going to it. And my, my most fascinating thing I got out of here was that apparently the elevation of Atlanta was a problem. Well, for pitchers, it was. I mean, Atlanta at Colorado is now by far the highest elevation place with a major league baseball team. At the time, Atlanta's a thousand and fifty feet above sea level, I believe, and yeah. there was no other city like that in the big leagues at the time. The hot, humid uh, summer weather in Atlanta just caused the ball to carry and carry, and the stadium developed the nickname the launching pad. It came from a pitcher named Pat Jarvis. He was coming home from a road trip on a bus with one of the sports writers, uh, Wayne Minshew, who's since passed away since I talked to him. And Wayne told me Pat Jarvis pointed at the stadium and said, there she is, boys, the launching pad. And it became the nickname of the stadium because so many home runs were hit there. Uh, and the Braves tended to have a very good home run hitting team and very weak pitching in part because it was a very difficult place to pitch, particularly in the 60s and 70s. That's so fascinating. So the next, so we have baseball in 66-ish. And then the next sport that comes do i have this right is it is it soccer or football well you have you have the atlanta falcons who come in in the fall of 66 also to atlanta fulton county stadium uh i mean atlanta couldn't be a more football mad place with high school football and college football but they couldn't really get the time of day from the national football league or its competitor the american football league until they built a stadium once atlanta had a contract in place to build a brand new stadium boy Everybody wanted wanted Atlanta, whether it was the Bidwills in St. Louis, who uh, talked about moving their team down, the Cardinals down to Atlanta, whether it was the American Football League, whether it was the NFL, everybody wanted a piece of this new lucrative uh, market in Atlanta, in part because it was like a seven-state media market with nothing around it. They were pro sports in Washington, D.C. They were pro sports in Dallas and Houston. The Southeast was Atlanta's to, to cover in this time period. So it was just it. such a great media market to, to get into once there was a stadium in place. Part of the problem is Georgia Tech wouldn't allow their stadium to be used for football. 
uh, for the National Football League or, or the AFL at the time. So they needed their own stadium, essentially, to make this uh, happen. And once they got it going, everybody wanted into Atlanta. So this same Atlanta Fulton County Stadium was going to be used by football and baseball. Football, baseball, uh, religious revivals, concerts. Like the Jehovah's Witnesses <laughs> had revivals there like every year, basically, for throughout the late 60s, <laughs> early 70s. That was a fun aside, too. I'm like, oh, this is good. Um, and then I think I also read, too, that this was at the same time that the Falcons come, the rise of UGA football, I guess, being good or getting popular. So, I mean, did this all contribute to the Falcons not being as popular when they first came? Well, at one point in the book, I say something like that Sunday professional football was the third day of football on the weekend for people in Georgia. There's high school football. There's on Friday nights, college football on Saturday and the, the Falcons on Sunday. And it was certainly the third most significant in terms of the appeal of it to people as well. In Metro Atlanta, you had many high school games that would draw five digits in terms of people, more than 10,000 people uh, to, to games on Friday nights. You had Georgia, who had a, drew a huge crowd. Georgia Tech had a long, rabid fan base. Uh, and people didn't just stop being interested in those teams simply because there were um, there were uh, people wearing Atlanta across their chest playing pro football in town. In particular, UGA under Vince Dooley rises to be the main foil to Bear Bryant in Alabama in the 60s and 70s in the SEC. So Georgia Tech had really been probably the most prominent program in the state really until the mid-1960s, but Georgia Tech begins to falter a little bit, and Georgia certainly rises and becomes almost certainly the second-best team in the country's best football conference and has maintained its status as being being such a such an essential part of the state's culture uh, ever since then. So UGA is, you know, really not that far down the road from Atlanta is becoming more and more important in the 60s and 70s as the Falcons kind of struggle out of the gate and don't don't get their bearing for basically a generation. So soccer, I have 1966, is that right? Well, initially in 66, 67, the team comes in uh, full-time, the Chiefs, who performed within the context of that league, performed well. They won a championship. They drew between five and 10,000 people to most of their games in the early years. Um, the World Cup of 1966, which was in England, and uh, England had won, had drawn a lot of attention in America. So many investors who were interested in sports figured it was going to be what they called the next football in the sense of being the next pro football. Because... In 1960, Major League Baseball was certainly the country's most popular sport. Football rises in terms of its cultural significance, in part because it plays so well on television in a very cinematic sense. It, it goes across the landscape. It works. It's such a great sport for television that football takes on a new preeminence in the culture. Atlanta's certainly ahead of the curve in terms of that. It had been wildly popular long before that in Atlanta. And this but, is playing, so the soccer is also being played at the same place. The, yes, the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. Um, before a, the first time the Chiefs ever played in town was uh, they played like a ten-minute exhibition before a Braves game in April 1967, just to show it off to people. You know, the team had some appeal certainly in the city. Uh, Phil Woosnam, who was the coach, was you know a very dashing figure. You had these very well-coiffed, well-paid, somewhat exotic because they were European guys in town. All of a sudden, they they, they certainly were an attraction briefly in the city. Um, the league ended up struggling financially over time, but the Atlanta franchise was certainly certainly not the um, franchise in the most difficult situation in that league. They actually did fairly did. well on the field and pretty well at the box office relative to many of their peers in the league. I think I wrote City's first championship. Is yes. that? Yeah. So the soccer, the first Atlanta Chiefs, the first soccer team got Atlanta its first championship. 
Absolutely. I mean, in terms of its popularity, it's it's way down relative yeah, to the yeah. other sports. But nonetheless, it's certainly the city's first professional championship and think something people took great pride in at the time. I think almost the most significant thing about the Chiefs is there was basically no youth soccer in Atlanta before they got there. There were like 200 players in metropolitan Atlanta when the Chiefs arrived. And within a couple of years, there were 20, 25,000 kids in the metro area playing youth soccer, which has been a, fe- a feature, particularly in suburban Atlanta, of youth culture ever since then. So they, the, the Chiefs really get that going, are excellent ambassadors for the game, and play a significant role in making Atlanta, to, in, in, to this day, being something of a soccer hotbed in the southeast. Yeah, that's so cool. I like that was my favorite part. Um, so wait, so next is it hockey or basketball? Basketball comes next in the fall. In the fall of 1968, the St. Louis Hawks um, move move to uh, to Atlanta and they play for four years at Georgia Tech. Cousins. So this fascinated me. So the Cousins owned the Gulch, but mm-hmm. before even thinking about the basketball, or this was all in tandem. No, he before he he wanted to redevelop it, and he saw sports as a mechanism for it. Build a coliseum. The city helped helped to finance it, but he ends up paying for it with his uh, cousins group and the Omni Group eventually, and also build the Omni International Complex uh, surrounding it, a multi uh, multi use development. So he saw it as a way of reviving a basically dormant part of downtown Atlanta. He was no big sports fan. I mean, he got involved with sports primarily as a way to uh, bolster his real estate investments and to help revitalize the city. He spoke explicitly, I'm giving something back to my home, which is, has, has so enriched me by, by doing these things, by bringing in the Hawks, by bringing in the Flames. So there's this, again, these motivations outside of simply, boy, I want to watch hockey or boy, I want to watch basketball. There were these broader civic ends, which, which were inspiring these things, which lead to the building of the Omni Coliseum and then the broader Omni International Complex, which eventually becomes the CNN Center. It was it was it was built to be the home of the Hawks. He get he ends up getting hockey too because he has an he has an arena uh, in place. So the National Hockey League suddenly, even though there was not an indoor ice rink in the state of Georgia in 1970, really? not one, and all of a sudden they have a National Hockey League team, a sport that almost nobody had ever seen before. They didn't have <laughs> hockey on television till 1969 in Atlanta. So I love how you said how like people didn't even know how to cheer. Like like one guy started cheering when they were just like doing the puck thing to figure out who goes yeah. first. <laughs> yeah, there was a face off. If the puck traveled yeah. at all, people were cheering. But people figured it out and they enjoyed it. I mean, it, it really, it's proximity to underground Atlanta. It became the place to go on Friday and Saturday nights in the city. You were sitting in these beautiful plush theater seats, people dressed to the nines, wearing furs and suits and everything to go to their games. And it was a real... Uh, particularly for upscale Northside consumers, it, it was a real major attraction in the early to mid 1970s. The the Flames they ran into trouble down the road, but in some ways that had as much to do with Tom Cousins, cousins getting in some financial trouble with his uh, downtown real estate empire as much as anything. I saw that. So he sold it. He sold the Hawks to Ted Turner when he got into that financial yes. situation, right? And yes. then Ted Turner ended up also buying the the Braves. Ted, Ted right? Turner purchased the Braves first. He purchased them in 1976, oh, basically first. on the installment plan. Nobody had ever done this with a pro sports team before, but the Braves owners, who were out-of-town guys for the most part, uh, I mean, a group of investors from Chicago, basically, um, he buys them for $10 million over 10 years, essentially. Um, wow. The league was initially suspicious of him, saying, this is a guy who's involved with television. He's involved with selling outdoor advertising. This isn't our kind of guy. 
Ted Turner turned out to be the best thing they could have asked for. They had a stable owner who was a fantastic promoter of their team, ends up putting Major League Baseball on national television, couldn't be a better ambassador for the sport and for the uh, uh, and for Atlanta itself. I mean, he very much was a civic-minded capitalist with some of these investments, which served pragmatic ends too. It provided programming for TBS having the Braves and the Hawks. But at the same uh, time, those teams could have easily left town without without Ted Turner's support. And uh, right after the Braves won the World Series in the fall, I wrote I wrote a piece about that. About part of the part of the thanks for this has to go to Ted Turner in the mid 1970s seeing a diamond in the rough with the Braves, a franchise that was potentially on the way out of town. There was talk of them moving to Toronto. There was talk of them splitting games with New Orleans. They played at the Superdome. Was 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 a possible idea. But Ted Turner invests in his in, invests in Atlanta and keeps the Braves there, keeps the Hawks there, and loses money for a number of years on both franchises. But uh, they serve his um, television empire well. Um, so I don't. I I definitely want you to talk about the Loserville chapter at least because I think. Comically, I think you sent me this book before we won. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then and then UGA won. And I and I kept joking. I was like, does this is this title gonna stay? You know, like does it Oh yeah, it's not a commentary on the president, <laughs> it's a commentary in the sixties and seventies. A guy named Louis Grizzard, who is who is an editor for the Atlanta Constitution, ran a two page front page story in July nineteen seventy five, bemoaning the lack of on field and also box office success of Atlanta's teams. And the national sporting press picked it up as a descriptor for Atlanta during this time period. Atlanta is far from Loserville at the moment with the success of the Braves. The Falcons have had great success in recent years. The Hawks last year had a fantastic run. Atlanta United winning a championship. Atlanta is anything but Loserville at, the, at this point. The, book, the title is referring explicitly to the 60s and 70s. Got it. So, so it was, I think, who was the guy that read it that was really upset about it? Was it Ted Turner at that point? Well, Ted Ted Turner, he was sick of hearing it in the press. We're we're yeah. going to be Winnersville. We're not going to be Loserville anymore. It because other the, the national press had picked it up, and he's buying a franchise that was one of the worst drawing in baseball, and also one of the worst performing by that time period. So he very much um, tries to rebuild the city. I mean, rebuild the franchise, and he does so. It, it takes time, but he certainly does so with his uh, his success as a promoter and doing whatever he can to get attention for the team, and eventually the product improves. We could talk about it forever, and there's there's a lot of it that, for me, the most fascinating stuff was a lot of the racial dynamics, um, especially with basketball that I had no idea about. That's what I was impressing my husband with last night with some of these stats. But and the each stadium and the politics around it, and you know the performance of the teams, like my, and small things like I did not know that the naming contests. Is it hockey had a naming contest? And then what was the other? The, the Falcons got named by a teacher the... from McDonough. I mean, yes. she, she got the idea of Falcons and they went with it. I had no idea. So there's, I just, I, you know, I want you to also say the stuff that you want to make sure people know, but I, I just want to make sure that everybody realizes that this, you don't have to be a sports fanatic at all. I am the furthest from that. If you this is so much more also about Atlanta and Atlanta history, which I always appreciate. You know, this is not about one thing. It's about the entire city, which you did an amazing job with it. I see this book as using sports as a prism through which to look at the history of an evolving city in the 60s and 70s. I mean, it's as much a story of Atlanta as it is of the particular teams. And in some ways, it's also, I guess, an origin story for the modern sports business, too. Because not only does Atlanta physically change as a result of this, culturally change as a result of it. Atlanta, I think, plays no, no small role in changing 
the nature of sports in the country too, that cities have to be willing to buck up financially if they want to, uh, if they want to be major leagues. So the parameters of becoming a major pro sports town, Atlanta essentially events during the 1960s and 1970s. So there you have it. The story of professional sports in Atlanta. Remember, the book does come out February 1st. I will put a link in the show notes if you guys would like to pre-order it or order it when it comes out. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review. Uh, You can visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.